0: Hi everybody! just before we start this week's show, we have an exciting announcement to make. Yes, as you may have heard, we are returning to the
1: road that leads to theatres across the UK and Ireland to perform our new
0: stage show, Nerd Immunity. It's going to be a live podcast, that's going to be the second half of every show, completely different every single time. And in the first half, there's going to be a magnificent first half comedy set starring all your favourites from the podcast. Dan, James, Anna, all your favourite people... (laughs) right there (laughs) in one room if
1: you would like to come along and be a part of that do go to qi.com slash fish events and you'll find links to all the places that we're going which starts on the 5th of october tunbridge wells Reading, petersburg exeter canterbury london oxford pool chesterfield manchester
0: so many places we're going to do check it out okay go to qi.com slash fish events but before that on with the show on with the show Hey.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber, I am sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, Anna Tashinsky and James Harkin and once again we have gathered round the microphones with our four favourite facts from the last seven days and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one
0: and that is Andy. My fact is that the Victorian poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning had her spaniel stolen by London's dog banditti on three separate occasions.
2: <laughs> there sound like at least two euphemisms in that sentence. <laughs> I reckon having your spaniel stolen and London's dog banditti sounds... Yeah,
0: it's all true. There might be some euphemisms later, actually. But no, That she had a lovely little spaniel and it was called Flush, Flush the Dog. And, but don't. Uh, she l- don't flush the dog. If you're listening. But this was a huge problem in Victorian London. I say huge. It was a medium-sized problem. But for middle-class people who were suddenly getting dogs and showing them off and grooming them and breeding them, it was a problem because thieves realised you could steal dogs. And the owners were paid quite a bit to get them back. And mm. poor little Flush got stolen in 1843 to order. She paid the thieves off and they brought it back. Then again in 1844, she paid them off again. A bit more money this time. She got it back. And then in 1846, a third time, Flush the dog was stolen. At which point, Flush must have been getting used to this routine
2: by now. Um, (laughs) At that stage, maybe Flush preferred his other owners. Although I heard that it was a very, very spoiled dog, Flush, and that he would turn his nose up at any bread that wasn't buttered. Mm. So I imagine the dog nappers (laughs) probably weren't giving him buttered bread. She
0: wrote about him, if you were but to see him eat partridge from a silver fork... I mean, very, very overspoiled dog. Anyway, then what?
3: What, what's the uh, what's the end of that clause? If you were but to see him eat <laughs> from a silver fork, what you pass I've, out with envy? I think I've you're cut, so disgusted you leave the room.
0: <laughs> I've cut it. I've cut it short there. So we'll never know. It can't have been that interesting. Otherwise, I would have said. If she'd said, if you were to see him do this, you'd shit. Um, <laughs> she. <laughs> That's
3: her style. I yeah. believe it.
0: She claimed. She claimed that he could have the capacity for literacy. She said he recognised the letters A and B, and that maybe in the course of time, he might learn the full alphabet.
2: Wow. He wow.
0: So he could send an SOS out at some <laughs> point.
2: No, he could order an ABBA CD, basically.
0: <laughs> anyway, well, look, he couldn't have done any of these things if, as the thieves threatened, they were going to cut off his head and paws and send them back to Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Very distressing, obviously. Mm. That's what they said they would do.
3: Yeah, that's horrible. Wow. No wonder she paid up
0: i read a
1: really good account of it of the third time that the dog was stolen and she was getting on a bus and the dog was just wandering behind her in london clearly leashless and she got on the bus turned around looked for the dog and it was gone and instead of getting off to look for her dog (laughs) she and her sister just stayed on the bus and And her sister was like well guess there'll be a ransom note when we get back
2: That's a great idea, isn't it? If you're in the supermarket and you can't be bothered taking your kids home in the car, just wait for the ransom
3: (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask what kind of bus we think she was getting? It was the 1840s, right? Was it like a a stagecoach?
0: It might have been a carriage.
3: A carriage. uh, hmm. An omnibus. An omnibus. That's yeah. what
0: it felt
1: like. It felt like she was getting on a proper bus when I read the I mean, report. it certainly um, wasn't a
3: proper bus in the sense that we know it because it was like <laughs> six years before proper buses were. Wasn't being... a route
1: master. <laughs> yeah, maybe
0: I've read that wrong. Maybe carriage.
1: Let's go carriage, actually.
0: <laughs> uh, flush the dog, he must have thought as he was being dog napped for the third time, he must have thought, Mamma Mia, here we go again.
3: Oh,
2: and that very good. Is, is that... Thank you. And uh, Do you think he sent out an SOS? <laughs> Are are you
3: giving the punchline to a joke That was set up five minutes ago
0: Yeah I think I am Anyway look the thieves were only interested in money 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 That's what they wanted (laughs) (laughs) And so they sent this ransom note And there was a lot of um, dispute in the family Because her father was very tyrannical He didn't want a ransom paid But there was this contact There was a shoemaker called Taylor who was the main player in the dog theft world in Victorian London, he was involved in a huge number of these thefts. He was usually not the guy to steal the dog, but he was the guy who would make contact and say, oh, we've come into this dog. <laughs> <I> <laughs> was oh, that's that.
2: disgusting. <laughs> we've
0: come into the possession of oh, this dog. Oh,
2: sorry, because I thought you were Oh, right, okay. <laughs> I find it really hard to work out exactly what happened on all these occasions because Virginia Woolf wrote a fictionalised version Of Flush's dog napping, didn't she? She wrote a biography of this dog in which there are loads of explanations of how he was taken and then how he was gotten back and stuff, which God knows what's true and what's not true. But the best bits I find probably not true. (laughs) Yes. It's
0: so funny. She wrote the whole thing in 1933, or it was published in 1933, certainly. It was quite a light book off the back of a rather heavy and serious brain-draining one she'd just written. But it was her best-selling book to date, which must have been, no. <laughs> yes, infuriating. Like, to now? Like, no, uh, to oh, that right, point yeah, in her career, was say, it was the yeah. most successful. Yeah, it's. I, uh-huh. I don't think it's currently outselling Mrs. Dalloway. <laughs> <laughs> I might be wrong. You
2: never know. Maybe after this podcast. That's but true. she was like, when it first came out, she wasn't sure if um, <laughs> she should even publish it because yeah. she thought that people would think... Think she was like a frivolous, not very yeah, kind yeah, of... Yeah, mm. yeah it's a, I
3: mean, it's a biography of someone's dog.
2: Yeah, silly lady yeah. novelist was the worry that she had. <laughs> she said, um, I must not let myself believe that I'm simply a ladylike prattler. Well, maybe yeah, write okay. a biography
3: of a human being, Virginia.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Talking dog. Was she friends with Flush? Did
0: she know Flush? And did she know Brown? No, 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 the, the, the timelines didn't cross over.
3: Um, just to defend Virginia Woolf having abused her for writing about a dog, it did have a serious message underneath, didn't it? I think she was just worried people wouldn't get it. So, well, this is how she defended it anyway, writing to her friend. She was like, look, it's going to seem silly because it looks like it's a biography of a dog. But if you read it, well, it's partly, I guess, an ode to Elizabeth Browning, right? Who was a hero for subsequent female writers and partly a way of descending into the depths of London and reporting on the awful poverty and social injustice there. Through the eyes of a dog, yes. But even so... So it was vaguely mm. serious, but it also featured a plot point which I don't think was in the real life story, where the dog was almost sold to a man called Pussy.
2: <laughs> <What's> this <laughs> part
3: of this part of the story was she got it from a friend of hers who initially had been had an offer made from the brother of the Reverend Edward Bouverie Pusey. I think. Oh, we're saying Pusey
0: it. is a different name to pussy it
3: it is a different name but (laughs) it, it is spelled in a similar way
0: very similar
1: dog napping back then was such a big thing in london there was a journalist called henry mayhew who estimated that in terms of individual dog stealers operating in London at his time, it was 141 people just going around London, <laughs> stealing them. And um, he estimated that 45 of them did it as their main profession. They just actively <laughs> went into it. And you can see there's sort of tables of sort of like 1841, dogs stolen, where 43 dogs lost, 521 people charged, 51 people discharged of that, 32. They just found it really hard to bust people who were stealing the dogs. Yeah, hang on Dan, how many dogs did you say stolen? So stolen 43, dogs lost 521, but I I I imagine that there's a blur between those two because a lot of these dog nappers got around loopholes by if they'd stolen a dog, they would do things like make up a missing sign, which they would then show if they had the dog to a dog dealer and say, look, I found this missing poster of this dog and this is the dog. They buy it off them and then sell it. So technically
0: it was a missing dog. The guy who stole the dog makes the poster yeah, saying exactly.
2: missing dog. But that then he yeah. he makes the
3: poster and then he gives it to a dog dealer and says, I've got this dog on this missing poster. Can I sell it to you?
2: Yeah, he's like, look, there's yeah. a missing poster here. Someone's looking for this dog um, and I found the dog. So if I just give it to you, then you'll be able to do the deal and get the money and just give me half the money for now. It's fine. Uh-huh. That's so that funny. Kind of I still think
0: that even a total of something like 600 dogs lost and reported stolen too. Mm. Given that there are 141 dog stealers in London, 45 of whom are doing it full time. That is, what, about four dogs per person per year? One per quarter? Yeah. I mean... That's a lot of holidays. It's
3: It's, it's an astonishingly (laughs) low proportion of dogs. I don't know why we're acting like this is a lot of dogs to be stolen. How is anyone making a profit out of this?
1: Well, they took their time, didn't they? Didn't they find out with Elizabeth Barrett Browning that they'd spent two years tailing her before they took her dog?
2: two years spotting right? yeah or is that again is that the virginia wolf story i'm not <laughs> sure I can't work out. That was so um, the other thing is you could make some money on the side by stealing a dog not getting the money back but uh, making dog skin leather gloves <gasps> um, which are apparently a luxury item that people like to wear they're very oh soft on the skin
1: yeah have we ever worn dog outside of dog skin gloves i've never heard of it before
3: um, I don't know if you've seen the documentary 101 Dalmatians, but <laughs> yeah.
0: It wasn't the only dog um, related trade. This is a bit by the by now, but there was a market in 1850s London for fake dog poo. Really? So there were people who were collecting real dog poo for tanneries because it helped to soften and purify the leather, uh, right? Yeah.
2: Is fake dog poo just your own poo with some dog <laughs> hairs in it? Because it feels like probably is. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs>
0: Thankfully, it's just taking mortar from old walls and crumbling it into your existing dog poo to bulk it out a bit. It's a way of making your real dog poo go further. Ah. The people who traded in it and collected it were originally old women who got nicknamed bunters, but then men started muscling in from about the 1820s onwards. And these dog poo collectors would walk the streets with a covered basket containing their wares, and some of them would wear a black leather glove to do their collecting in others only some of them them, because the others they didn't have a glove they said well look it's easier to wash your hands than to clean the glove
3: I think that's a fair Mm, point
0: yeah good call (laughs) good call (laughs) I knew (laughs) I knew
1: Anna would be the first one to say yeah It was pretty exciting to hear about the fact of London being poo because in the area that I live particularly there is poo from dogs that are just left all over the streets and just the idea that it was picked up because people thought it as valuable and needing it as part of this tanning process means that Victorian London was just clean. In, in that respect, in that respect, I know it's not.
3: Interesting <laughs> theory, because I think it was also sort of thigh deep in horsemanure, wasn't it? And technically you could
2: use that as well. It must be really hard to find dog poo in a street that's full of horse poo. It's, like, it's <laughs> almost like the 19th century equivalent of finding a needle in a haystack is finding a dog poo in a horse poo. That was a yeah. saying,
0: I believe. That was a popular <laughs> saying at the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay it is time for fact number two and that is james my fact is that the democratic republic of congo is planning an official parade of its first prime minister's gold tooth (laughs) very cool you've got to get front row
3: seats for that haven't you otherwise it's just not worth going
2: yeah Mm. you're not going to see it from the back of the stadium are you no (laughs) So I will quickly give you a short history of the Democratic Republic of Congo in the last 200 (laughs) years to explain what's going on here. Right. Um, You might remember... That amusing story of Henry Morton Stanley finding Dr. Livingstone.
3: Oh, wow. We, we really are going back.
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we are, we are. Right. So he said, Dr. Livingstone, I presume, and he found Dr. Livingstone. But after that, the story took a bit of a turn. And Stanley was working on behalf of Leopold II of Belgium to create this massive personal tract of land where he could almost farm it for ivory because there was so much ivory, um, so many elephants and stuff like that. So he created this huge, huge country that was run by Leopold II of Belgium. There was then a rubber boom because they came up with this idea of buses. I don't know if you've heard of those, Dan. They came along in the um, early 20th century. So Leopold II of Belgium forced the population to work on his rubber plantations and literally millions of people died in terrible, terrible conditions. In 1960, the country got its independence finally, and they got a new leader called Patrice Lumumba. So they thought he might bring the whole country together. Uh, But there was one area called Katanga that had loads of minerals, and the Belgians wanted to keep that under the control after independence because they wanted all of these minerals. Lumumba asked the U.S. and Europe to help to control an uprising, but U.S. and Europe didn't help, and so he turned to the Soviet Union, and obviously that sent alarm bells ringing in Europe and America. It was an awkward
3: time, wasn't it, between
2: America and the Soviet Union? It was. It was the Cold War. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, they assassinated this guy, Patrice Lumumba, uh, and to stop any hero worship, they dissolved his body in acid, and there was hardly any bits left. This gold tooth was remaining and was taken to Belgium. Um, by one of the people who did the crime. Uh, and then this year, finally, they're going to get it back. And they're going to have a proper parade, and it'll be kind of part of their anniversary of independence. Right. And that kind of stuff.
0: I had never heard the story of Patrice Lumumba before. Mm. And it's really, obviously, it's a completely awful story, yeah. this coup uh, against him. And there were apparently two different plots against him. One was CIA slash MI6, and one was Belgian along with some Congolese officials as well.
2: Yeah, the CIA tried to kill him with some poison toothpaste.
3: They apparently found it difficult to get the toothpaste onto his toothbrush without being noticed which it's so rare that toothpaste is applied to your toothbrush without you being in front of your toothbrush. (laughs) Unless you're Prince Charles
0: Charles, in which case it's a twice daily occurrence. Is that right? Yes. I'm not saying they should but if the CIA wanted to knock off Prince Charles with this method he would be a sitting duck.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking it's definitely a two man job isn't it? One person to distract you so much that you don't notice that the other person sneaks into your bathroom and puts yeah. toothpaste on your toothbrush that you're holding. But you'd turn
0: back and you'd think, no, actually, you wouldn't think. You wouldn't think, did I put this tooth? Paste on the brush. No. You just look at it and you think, "What's
2: the other option that it's just spontaneously arrived on your toothbrush?" That doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah, they'd have to be, have opened the toothpaste because I would be suspicious if I hadn't got the toothpaste out of its special drawer yet uh, to put it on the brush. <laughs> yes. If you know what I mean. It's a tough location
1: all round, isn't it? Because you know, if you're brushing your teeth, most likely you're staring into a giant mirror, which would knock yep. out anyone's chance of sneaking up behind you.
2: <laughs> That's a really good point. Um, whose tooth? do you think is the most expensive john lennon's or elvis presley's
0: um are the, does one of them have more teeth in circulation i can't work out why that would be
2: oh yeah interesting okay this gives you a bit of a clue both yep. of these are owned by the same guy who is a tooth collector of celebrities <laughs> oh okay. Wow.
0: this is a weird tooth fairy dude <laughs>
1: I'm going to say John Lennon because there's probably more bits of Elvis Presley on the market, like his toenails and so on, that you can get access to. I'll
0: say Elvis. I'll say Elvis is bigger. I think the sort of people who want the teeth will be more interested in Elvis than Lennon. I don't well, know
3: why there are more bits of um the dismembered Elvis Presley on the market <laughs> than there are of apparently dismembered John Lennon. I did not realize their body parts were in circulation at all.
1: Well, I know that we know where his Elvis's wart is. It's in a museum in America. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's a there's remember possibly his toenail that we've mentioned. yes, yes. Um yeah. so you
0: know, bits of Elvis are all over the no, shop. That's that's a really a good argument. argument. James, s- stop this. interminable debate and tell us
2: (laughs) the answer is that elvis presley's dental crown was ten thousand dollars whereas john lennon's tooth was thirty one thousand dollars yes so three oh, times more nice for John comments. Lennon. Fuck it, Murray. But,
0: the, but that's a crown. That's different. It's a crown.
2: Although he was the king. Exactly. So, so they do. Nice. They call it the king's crown. Uh, <laughs> and it was worn by Elvis Presley until he cracked it on a microphone while performing in Las Vegas in 1971. And eventually found its way into the collection of Michael Zuck. Uh, and Michael Zuck also bought uh, one of John Lennon's extracted teeth, um, which Lennon had given to his housekeeper, dot
0: Wow, a, w- a weird move let's say a it's, weird not, move. If it, it's not it's not unless his housekeeper asked for look it how no, much it's worth.
1: if you were as famous as elvis or john lennon if i cut off a fingernail if i cut a strand of hair hand it to someone it's going to make them money you are your whole body is worth stuff i think it's a wonderful present
0: <laughs> i've got a question about the elvis thing which is that you said he cracked his crown on a microphone during yeah. a gig now look i'm not saying our gigs go like elvis's I'm not Mm. saying our audiences are as raucous But that's quite the gig Where you're shoving your microphone into your mouth To the extent it cracks a dental crown
2: I don't think he was shoving his microphone into his (laughs) mouth I think it's probably more of an accidental Kind of swinging it round than it hits you in the face I don't think he was deep-throating the microphone
1: No, no, (laughs) if you watch concerts, that was his style He sang from the back of the throat And he took that literally (laughs) So he would throw it all the way back (laughs) Um, Hey, just, I was looking into, because this gold tooth is a relic, and I was just looking at other political leader relics that we still have, and um, have you guys heard of Chairman Mao's mango? (laughs) No. No.
0: Is it like um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Spaniel?
1: (laughs) (laughs) This was basically during the Cultural Revolution, there was a big fight that happened in one of the universities in Beijing, in Tsinghua University, and Mao sent 30,000 workers to try and stop all of the sort of weird groups that were breaking out and causing ruckus in China at the time, sent these workers to stop that. And there was a huge fight there. The workers were not prepared for the fight because they basically came with just pictures of Chairman Mao, a little red book, whereas the other people had like bricks and spears (laughs) and acid. And so it was a huge fight. And um, eventually these workers won. And as a reward, Chairman Mao gave them 40 mangoes. Mao never gave presents. And so it was seen as a high, high uh, honor. But the main thing was that no one in Northern China at this point really knew what mangoes were. So all of them were just staying up at night, looking at it, smelling them, caressing them. And they were thinking, we need to make sure that this mango, this special thing that he's given to us remains with us. And so they had it waxed and they put it in formaldehyde and they made sure that it just stayed, you know, proper. And as a result, it got taken everywhere and everyone was looking at Chairman Mao's mango the communist party seeing this turned it into a propaganda thing so there was merchandise that you could buy you everywhere you went there were like you know tin cups with mangoes on them and so on and and it became this massive thing the, the chairman Mao mango
3: doesn't it slightly go against the uh principles held within the little red book to turn your mango into merchandise how does, how does how feel about that
0: i don't think it's that granular on the detail <laughs> yeah <laughs> a little red book it probably does go against the principles but there's a loophole i'm sure okay it's a mango loophole flog flog your mango around the place yeah.
2: we did talk about this on qi i don't know if it ever went out but the question that we asked was how mad could a mango make a mango ah nice, Very nice.
0: Mm. what was mm. the answer to how 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 mad could a mango make a mango yeah.
2: Well, the answer was the anecdote that you just told me. Oh, was it? That went out on QI, didn't it? i with the format of
3: QI, Dan. But often there's not just like one straight answer. It's sometimes a bit of a left field thing. I,
1: it? yeah, I should start watching that show.
3: <laughs> <laughs> there's one piece of material that's lasted a very long time, which probably you'll all be familiar oh, with. Go. Oh, yeah. And that is the Virgin Mary Toast. So, do you, can everyone, uh, can you remember the. The toast, the famous toast with the face of the Virgin Mary. Yeah,
2: okay. It's what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It was sort of, I think it was a big hit. It was like the biggest celebrity of the 90s, along with the Spice Girls. 1996, <laughs> right. uh, this woman was eating toast, Diana Doiser, and she was, took a tiny bite of her toast and then realised the Virgin Mary's face was staring up at her. And so she preserved it in between two bits of plastic, like hard plastic. And she, she should
0: have preserved it between two pieces of cheese. That would have made it an anti-sandwich and would have made it worth even more. <laughs>
3: You could put it in true. between two
2: slices of bread and had like a toast sandwich, which is something yes. they used to eat, isn't it? Isn't it? Anyway, Absolutely. A,
0: a club yeah. sandwich is is kind of like that, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I feel like we're not going to the point of Anna's story here. I, I mean, I just, I'm not
0: sure there is a point think... to this story, but let's hear it out. <laughs> Apparently she was as big as the Spice Girls. I look forward to hearing about the reunion tour and her getting her own movie.
3: Well, you, you may be surprised. So none of your solutions afforded the Virgin Mary the kind of respect that Diana wanted to because she's a devout Christian. Uh, she so she preserved it and she said she had like 10 years of good luck she won $70,000 in a casino because wow. of this toast um, and then it was what? picked up by uh, is there more detail
0: on that or not yeah whispered over
2: her ear put yeah. it all on bread <laughs> put it all on bread yeah. <laughs>
3: She kept, she kept a piece of toast, thinking this will bring me luck. And then in the next decade, she won 70 grand. Okay. If you don't think that's because of the toast, then that's your problem.
2: Sure. Um anyway. a to wear the crust. Oh, my God.
3: <laughs> anyway, it's now held by another casino, goldenpalace.com, which oh. is a casino known for collecting these strange modern-day relics. And they bought it for $28,000. oh wow
1: um, is that why the house always wins because they've got the ultimate sort of talisman there yes exactly she right. was very
3: lucky. As they said when they bought it off her, customers were re- our customers are really going to get a kick out of seeing this sandwich. And they actually paid for her to go on tour with it and to the Taj Mahal and to Red Square. <laughs> Taj Mahal! To the To the what Eiffel Tower. <laughs> wow. It was very nice for Diana, who said she'd never been on holiday in her life. She'd spent her life looking after her elderly parents. Wow. She got to do this world tour.
0: She must have had a, must have had a real wry smile on her face. As she got off the plane
2: Oh yeah Because that's the type of bread isn't it Absolutely
0: Maybe it was a whole grin (laughs) (laughs) There's another toothy relic that I found Actually it's more of a Just a wonderful tooth removal than a relic I don't know if the tooth has been preserved But it was from 2015 And it was a young girl called
2: Ellie Clay And she had her tooth removed (laughs) By javelin So someone stood 100 metres away And threw a javelin (laughs) And it just landed directly in her face Where the tooth was (laughs)
0: That would have been Very impressive They did it They did it in reverse The health and safety nuts Um, Her father was an Olympic Javelin thrower And she had a very loose tooth And so they tied a bit of Dental floss carefully Around the tooth They tied the dental floss To a javelin uh, I guess a very long bit Of dental floss (laughs) And then he just Chucked the javelin Amazing. 30 meters they made sure it was a really wow. loose tooth before they did it obviously so that she didn't go flying after it and her whole family have these crazy methods of removing teeth they've done it by putting a bit of floss on the family dog's collar and then getting the dog to run off that was one thing i've tried <laughs> lots of stuff
3: that actually wasn't a removal attempt the dog was just stolen midway through a wall
2: wasn't it <laughs>
1: Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Anna.
3: My fact this week is that in the 1920s, thousands of people with the surname Drake fought a legal battle to inherit Sir Francis Drake's fortune. Wow. (laughs) Uh, this, This is just an amazing scam that was pulled. And... It was based on a rumour that's basically been going around since Francis Drake died and he didn't really have any direct descendants and everyone claimed that he had a hidden fortune that wasn't inherited by anyone and that's sitting somewhere. And fast forward to 1914. Uh, it starts with these con artists. There's a woman called Sadie Whitaker. And she's going around Iowa claiming her cousin's heir to this ancient Drake fortune, which is now just worth so much because (laughs) it's gained so much interest over the last 300 years. And she swindles this Iowa farm woman out of $6,000 because she convinces her that if she buys shares in this scheme to kind of retrieve Francis Drake's lost wealth, then she'll get a cut in it. Now, this woman's son, this poor farm woman's son, is a guy called Oscar Hartzell, who rather than going to defend his mother's honour and money thinks, God, what a good trick. I'm going to build on that. And he joins up with them and Oscar Hartzell sets up the Francis Drake Association. He writes to thousands of people across the state that are across America with the name Drake, saying, Francis Drake's fortune is being held by the British government, those bastards. We've got to wrench it back. You're probably all related to him. You pay me some money and I'll go and get
0: it for it's you. So yeah. It's so convincing. It's so convincing that I feel like I want to sign up to it despite not being called wow. Drake. And
1: well it doesn't matter It doesn't matter that you're not called Drake This was his genius He had 70,000 people signed up Including people not called Drake <laughs> He just opened it up yeah. Everyone get he, in He expanded
3: in. He suddenly went Hang on people really are idiots I'm going to make this a bit bigger
2: Who got the money in the end Was it the rapper or That's it's, that's, that's where that's it is That's why he can spend his money Time rapping
0: now It's certainly not through album sales I'll tell you that much <laughs> That's unfair I'm sure he sells very well
2: um, <laughs> wait, wait. Uh, that is the most handy thing uh, I've ever heard in my entire life Oh I'm sure, d- young Drake I'm sure he does very well for himself Mr Drake <laughs> So
0: there's there's no money is there? No Complete nest of lies from the top to the finish. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Once um, someone dies If they have a will, after 30 years If you don't sort it out, then it all goes to the crown So there mm. wouldn't be any money anyway Even if there was some money But I think in the end I it see. went to his wife or his brother or something like they know where it went
3: yeah it went to a nephew or something of his in the end there was nothing very exciting about it but everyone was so convinced that this guy was telling the truth that the fbi actually investigated what had happened to francis drake's money in the late Mm, 1500s. It's just brilliant. And like you say, concluded it had gone to his wife and then down to some of his descendants. But the
0: details, the details were so convincing because he said it was worth about 100 billion (laughs) pounds. I'm not sure whether that's in modern money or in um, 1930s money because that would presumably have bought America. But one of the things he said was the entire city of Plymouth that happens to be part of the Drake estate.
2: So, <laughs> yeah, he said. I think he went up to four hundred billion at one stage because he kind of just said different amounts all the time. And he right. said that as soon as he got the money, obviously everyone would get the bit that they you know asked for. They would get a return on their money. But he said that he was going to go back to America and he was going to buy up, I think Missouri and um, Iowa and a few other states, and he was going to put a big fence around them and just live in them. That's what he claimed.
1: <laughs> his powers of persuasion just sound extraordinary because once he got back to america he was taken to trial in 1933 and yet even though he was being held accountable for it he still managed to get people who were subscribing to this scheme to contribute three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in legal defense fund to make sure he didn't go to jail he did go to jail he got given a 10-year sentence and even then still his agents were able to claw another half million dollars from these
0: subscribers to make sure that it's he was doing okay. It is. I mean, it's it kind of because it was presented as an investment. Mm. People were told this is an investment to fund the legal case to fight the British government and get this money out of them, which we know is there. And if you invest $1 for every dollar you'll invest, you will get 500 back. That was the idea. Uh-huh. And so when mm-hmm. you put it like that, it starts to sound like, oh, well, I am spending now, but it's it's an investment, you know. Yeah.
3: And also, it sort of makes sense, given what we know these days about how irrationally people can act, it makes sense that it actually convince people even more when he was convicted that what he'd said was true because it was like well why has the British government turned against him like this? Why have they yeah. put him in prison? Mm. He's obviously on them. They want to keep Plymouth. You know, in the same way that... <laughs>
0: they're, they're desperate to <laughs> yeah. cling on to the beauties of Plymouth and they will not <laughs> exactly. let it go.
3: <laughs> but it's just like today when you get someone like Alex Jones or a conspiracy theorist right and then people jump down their throats and then that makes their supporters yeah. their knee-jerk reaction is to dig down even harder and say well he's definitely telling yes, the truth. Yes, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Francis Drake? Yeah. who We, we haven't, haven't really said who he is yet, just for the benefit of any listeners who are not up on their <laughs> Drake. He was a pirate, privateer, uh, all-round coastal bandit uh um, <laughs> mayor of plymouth briefly A british hero or or pirates would you say oh, british hero slave trader it's so hard to tell where one begins <laughs> and the other end most likely known he he was
1: the first englishman to circumnavigate the globe yes is possibly what he's most known for
2: or possibly most well known for the spanish armada being the supposed head of yes
0: defeat Not well of no he wasn't the head of no, the spanish armada he, he was the he was the opposite quite quite the reverse yeah yeah he was the tail of the spanish armada he supposedly was the head of the force that defeated it yeah yeah i mean like a a really mixed career did start out as a slave trader and then became a great english hero so you know definitely a mixed scorecard i would say an
3: english hero for the time which basically meant he stole (laughs) shed loads of money off other countries and handed it to queen elizabeth which you know that's yeah that's how you want to make make a penny (laughs) that
0: was the benchmark in those days for english hero yeah yeah absolutely he seems like a, a very difficult man Uh, To get along with, on one of his voyages, Mm. he um, accused his second in command of witchcraft and had a show trial, and then had him had his head chopped off. Wow!
2: Oh yeah, Yeah. Doughty, Thomas Mm.
0: Doughty, not Doughty enough to resist uh, having his head chopped off. It turned out.
2: I doubt he thought much of that trial. Oh boy,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I doubt he would like to hear us talking about him in this way.
3: (laughs) He had a sense of humour, actually, Thomas Doughty. So perhaps he? he would have loved this. Um, yeah, he uh, allegedly, once he was told that he was going to be beheaded by Drake, basically unfairly for mm. bitching about Drake behind his back, he said, can I take communion with you first? And then, according to accounts that were pro and anti-Drake, they both took communion together and then had a great laugh and a banter and a chat about the good old days when they were friends. Mm. And then Drake chopped his head off. And in fact, Drake... Offered him, And now this is according to Drake's nephew who wrote an account which was based on diaries of people at the time. But a, apparently Drake said, look, because I feel bad about this whole unjustly beheading you thing, do you want me to shoot you instead? Because then you will have been shot by a gentleman. And that's nicer, isn't it? Wow. And Doughty said, Thank, thanks, that's so sweet of you to offer, but I'll just go for the straight up beheading. Right. It's quite, quite a weird incident but it's hard to tell isn't it because there are so many pro-Drake and anti-Drake bits of propaganda over the last 300 years yeah
2: you don't know if he was a, a goody or a baddie to work for mm. yeah well there was one bad thing when they went around the world circumnavigated the world and they took a woman from El Salvador and she got pregnant and they dumped her on an island No. Uh, and then what you're saying about propaganda a few years later Shakespeare wrote the Tempest uh, and there is character, Sycorax, who's an African woman who is dumped on an island, having got pregnant. And there is an idea, suggested, probably true, that Shakespeare based that yes. on this woman, Maria. Right, okay. oh, wow,
0: That is interesting. Mm.
2: That's
1: so interesting about the idea that there was superstitions and witchcraft that you were mentioning in, in relation to Doughty. Because he Drake was the kind of guy who other Spanish mariners would create these tales about as if he did have these amazing abilities. There was all these rumors that went out around him. There was the rumor that he possessed a magic mirror that allowed him to spy on the locations of the ships on the sea. They just thought, how could he know where our ships were? If they were behind him, for instance, he'd be able (laughs) to spy on them. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, They thought he had sort of contact with witches from Devon and that he could raise storms against the Spanish Armada. Mm. Um, Just so many of these weird tales. There was a tale that Elizabeth Sydenham, who he was in love with, and she wanted to marry him, but the family said that this was not going to happen. And then he went off and she got bored she was about to marry someone on the day that she was meant to marry him a huge cannonball fell at her feet that had been fired from drake's cannon from across the world in order to stop the wedding that was a story that went around
3: <laughs> it was actually drake was just trying to remove a tooth wasn't he <laughs> completely
2: misinterpreted imagine that if you say that line in the wedding does anyone here have any reason (laughs) and everyone's sort of sniggering behind their hands well i wonder if someone will say something and then a massive fucking cannonball lands in the middle of the church yeah and she
1: did later marry drake they did get married but yeah that's that was one of the stories he was full of all these abilities
0: Mm. i've just got one more thing which is another 1930s francis drake based swindle
2: okay Mm -hmm.
0: this was a the story of a young man who went for a hike in san francisco bay in 1936 and he found a metal plate on the ground he didn't think much of it but his friends pointed out it appeared to say francis drake on it and so he said all right i'll get it checked out he took it to a professor at the university of california called herbert bolton who was a world expert on the history of the americas and when bolton saw this plate he became unbelievably excited he said this is the drake plate it proves that he arrived in california there was a story that drake when he got he reached california he left a brass plate there with some writing on and this looked like it you know f- nearly 400 years later this is a seminal piece of the history of the world this proves something incredible mm. um it, the spelling looked legit the language on it looked legit and this was announced with great brouhaha um there were some people who doubted it but but it was announced as being real And then in 1977, there was a celebration of 400 years since Drake had reached California, and it was tested. And it was so, so clearly a fake. Uh, There was way too much zinc. It had been cut around the edges by a metal saw, which hadn't existed at the time. And the awful thing was, Herbert Bolton, the professor, had students um, who knew how interested he was in this subject. They had made a fake plate, and they had left it for someone to find. He had found it... And he spent the rest of his life uh, believing in it. And the problem was he had gone public so quickly and he had got so excited that his students were too embarrassed to say, it's not real, we fake the whole thing. So he went to his grave oh no. believing in the plate. Oh, well,
2: that's all right. Then he went to his grave. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, fine. I guess you're right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That plate is really interesting. Or the idea that Drake sort of claimed that part of California for mm. England mm. and said, okay, this, this landmass is now ours. Um, when of course the Spanish were kind of working their way up through Mexico and through that side, right? the Spanish were really, really annoyed about this. Um, but the lucky thing was that they ran all of the map makers or rather <laughs> the <laughs> map makers were mostly in like Netherlands and Belgium and stuff, but they were in charge of that area. And so they got all the map makers to pretend that California was an island Oh, and you yeah. know you see those old mm. old um, yeah. maps where California was is an island. Well, that was the Spanish basically saying this thing that Francis Drake has claimed for England is not the whole of America. It's just a little kind of island on the side. Right. So technically,
0: if California is English property, but Plymouth belongs to the states, should we just have an exchange now and keep things the same? <laughs> I think no
2: one can argue with that, can they? You get California, and they get Plymouth. It's a win-win, guys. <laughs>
1: okay it is time for our final fact of the show and that is my fact my fact this week is that 20th century american science fiction works include the titles servants of the wank <laughs> and planet of the knobheads
2: uh, are well. we
0: all in a way servants of the wank <laughs> <laughs>
1: So these were, <laughs> these were legit books that were published. Um, Planet of the Knobheads, published in 1939 by Stanton A. Coblin's, And in 1969, Servants of the Wank was published, and that was by Jack Vance.
2: I think British uh, readers might not recognize um, Servants of the Wank, because oh. it got renamed in Britain, because for obvious <laughs> reasons, it. yeah, yeah. It's- well, it's
3: not spelled the same. I mean, I'm not convinced we're pronouncing it right. It very clearly to me looks like servants of the wank. The wanker? <laughs> and that's, not, that's just not funny. It's,
2: it is. It's spelled W-A-N-K-H. I, I would say it's wank, like with like wanker. loch. Like loch. Yeah. Mm. Wow. No. I don't know,
0: Anna. For someone who humorously yeah. mispronounced the
2: perfectly ordinary name Pusey as Pussy for comic <laughs> effect earlier, I don't think you're going to like to stand on. Uh, did you read the um, Did you read the synopsis of any of the Servants of the Wank? No. Them, for instance, I did.
1: Give it, give it to us. It's brilliant.
2: A couple of humans land on a planet, and there's loads of different <laughs> loads of different groups there. Uh, one of them are the Wank. Basically, there's a group called the Wank Men, <laughs> yeah. and the Wank Men. <laughs> are the servants of the wank They're the humans who are working under the wank <laughs> well it's adam Reith, isn't it
1: it's this guy who crashes onto the planet and he yeah. needs to get off so his ship doesn't work so he needs to steal the wank spaceship in order to get out of there is the main plot
2: well yeah but then you've got all these four groups who are fighting against each other and you've got the wank men who it turns out have been destroying anything that the wank have been making um, to try and make a war between the wank and another group called the dear deer, uh and when the wank find out that the wank men have been destroying all of their wank machines then they expel the wank men from the wank cities and this guy who dan's talking about gets to um leave on his spaceship yeah it's
3: a happy ending you might say
2: (laughs) (laughs) are you all right andy
3: (laughs) oh my god (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll get put so, that we... tissue away <laughs> <laughs> but...
0: <laughs> look for the listener Andy did actually just blow his nose with the tissue the, the wank yeah. men they serve the wank
2: but Yes. What, what is the wank well the wank is, <laughs> wank is a group of people and they're oh. at war but the wank men want to keep the status quo because they want to carry on their cushy lives looking after the wank um, and so they're kind of causing okay. mayhem But actually, when the wank find out about the wankmen destroying all their stuff, then they get expelled.
1: And Adam doesn't seem to be the first human there because there are other human wankmen who are there. They serve under the wank and they handle all the communication between uh, the wankmasters and the rest (laughs) of the people who live on the planet.
3: Yeah. I feel like I've gone into like a Dungeons and Dragons discussion group or something after hours or like, you know, Game of Thrones fan club uh, spin-off. Can, are we going to go through the whole plot of Wankers are Us or whatever? it's that called?
2: That was the plot. That's the plot. That's it. Oh my God. <laughs>
1: he had to change the title in the end as james says when it came to britain because i think they thought anna's probably right the h might be pronounced differently but why don't we not take any risks so they changed it to i think what was another alien species on there called the chase or the chash and um the wank were renamed <laughs> the wannik so w-a-n-n-e-k okay Okay. Imagine being the author, Jack Vance Having to go back and just one by one Change Wank
2: to Wanick. He must be able to control H Or control H or control G Or whatever it is Well it's 1969, we didn't have that Isn't
3: it funny that it's 69 yeah. It's just a whole other layer that I hadn't realised until
0: just then um, Jack Vance, author of The Wank Was a really interesting guy He, yeah, yeah, he was a fascinating author, wrote sci-fi all his life and amazing works of fantasy, huge great works, pioneered the dying earth genre. In fact, I think this work was part of his Dying Earth series. But Vance himself was an electrician at Pearl Harbor when he was in the US Navy, Uh, but he left. He was discharged with prejudice, very bored of Navy life. And he got home a week before Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor,
2: before the bombings. Mm -hmm. So he really luckily dodged that.
3: Sorry, when you say he was discharged with prejudice... What is that?
2: So usually with prejudice means that it's like a final legal decision and you can't appeal it or anything like that. So I guess probably it might be dishonourable discharge with prejudice, which means that you're out and you can't come back. I'm not sure. Got it. Yeah. Ironically, for a man who wrote a book called Servants of the Wank, he left with a dishonourable
0: discharge. So... (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he... (laughs) after the usa entered the war he got back into the navy and this is the crazy thing he had very bad eyesight no jokes <laughs> ironically please. No, again. no 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 <laughs> he got into the merchant navy by memorizing an eye chart and that was how he got oh, in really? yeah mm.
3: but you don't know what eye chart you're going to get do you are they all the same must be yeah, yeah. what you're kidding we could all just memorise the eye chart and cheat the eye test.
0: Why do you want to do that? I think there are three or four eye charts now, Anna. And also, yeah, absolutely, don't cheat on your eye test. Not, there's not a pass mark for the eye test. Yeah.
2: <laughs> there's no reward for passing, apart from a continued bad sight if you cheat.
3: I like to do well.
2: <laughs> so I thought I would see if the word wank with KH has found its way in literature any other times in history. Uh, and so I went on to Google Books to look for inst- instances of the word wank with W-A-N-K-H. And they only found two examples. One is a book called Penciled Frown by James Gray, which is a 1925 satire about the newspaper industry. Um, and I'll just give you a quote. One man made primitive sounds as he played his cards, expressive of complacent confidence in his strategies. <laughs> wank, said the player. <laughs> said the player in triumph wank 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 and wank at each utterance a card was flung on the table (laughs) okay what
3: what was this word never used before or since it's just an
2: onomatopoeic word of you know triumph I think
3: right he's just trying to invent a new exclamation yeah
2: And the only other example of the word wank I can find in the whole of history of literature, according to Google Books, is from a systematic and ecological study of birds of New Guinea by Dylan Ripley, and it's about the collared brush turkey. It says this species was common on the Tammy River in heavy evergreen forest. It's called wank wank (laughs) (laughs) in an ascending scale was frequent morning and evening, and presumably more common as egg laying was in progress so there you are wow <laughs> very cool and um yeah. james harkins book club will return <laughs> next month <laughs> oh.
1: so i found um planet of the knobheads a bit harder to get sort of blurb on i only found a few bits did you guys find any no. there was no. there's a the bit i saw was that it's the story of newlyweds jack and marjorie wainwright who are big stars in the scientific world and then they get kidnapped by aliens they get taken to this uh, knobhead planet and they meet High Nobule and there's just a line <laughs> that was put in there which I can't tell. Someone was writing a blur but then added this line. I think it might be an extract. It's a line that just says, in about a week I had recovered from most of the effects of the knob operation. <laughs> so, Sounds about you know, right. little hints as to what happens in the plot but not too
3: sure. Did you read sort of like um, the Digest? Was this the blinkest idea <laughs> <How long laughs> of the
2: knobheads you got? <laughs> the word knobhead originally meant like the end of a cane, or you know, any, the end of a screw, for instance, any kind of knobby bit on the end. Mm. Of well, a if day. you
1: see the aliens in it, they look very robotic, and they have giant knobs uh. on their head, and so, hence, the knob heads. <laughs>
3: uh, so, Um So we talked about science fiction, the origin of science fiction, on our Comic Relief marathon, oh, yeah. but I don't think we've mentioned it here. So Hugo Gernsback is the person who coined the term science fiction. He sort of thought of as the father of science fiction. He founded a magazine in the 1920s devoted to it. It was called Amazing Stories. And the Hugos are the Mm -hmm. awards that are named after him, Science Fiction Awards. In the early days, he referred to it as scientific fiction, and then it became science fiction over the years. But he hated the Hugo Awards because he thought that they didn't award science fiction. So basically, the first (laughs) nine winners of the awards, he said only one of them was an actual piece of science fiction. (laughs) Really? All the rest were fantasy. Wow. He was very strict about what it was. It has to be, it has to have three components. It has to have charming romance... It has to have thrilling adventure and it has to have scientific facts.
1: Wow, because two of those things have nothing to do with science fiction.
3: And not according to Hugo, the creator of sci-fi, I'm afraid. Yeah,
1: but it sounds like he didn't know what it was nine times in a row. So I think I'm (laughs) on the side of the award organisers.
3: To be fair to him, I think he was on your side, Dan, and he said these don't contain enough scientific facts. Mm. So he wanted okay. them to be educational. Like 25% of each science fiction book should
2: be oh, educational. That's a high science. bar to clear. 25%. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes.
1: Hey, you know, um, so famous science fiction writers, Isaac Asimov has to be mm. right up there in the top five, really. And he's famous for the three laws of robotics. But do you guys know how many actual laws there are in the three laws of robotics?
2: Ooh. Well... I've read those books, iRobot books, right? And I thought it was like, first one is they can't do any harm. And the second one is something like, unless there's dangers going to happen to a human, then they can do some harm or something. And I can't remember what the third one was. Yeah,
1: exactly. A robot may not injure a human being. Uh, is the first one. There's more to that. Uh, A robot must obey the orders given by human beings Mm. except when such orders would conflict with the first law. That's right. And then the third law, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Right. So those were the three and he revised them a few times. Sorry, can I just
3: ask, are these the three laws within a piece of fiction? What's the laws? Where where are they applying? Basically,
2: he wrote all these stories that basically use those three laws as your trick and every single one of the stories has uses those as a trick don't they i think yes yeah exactly he
1: just created the sort of the rules of sci-fi for robots with with this so he revised them a number of times during his lifetime but then he decided to add another law but obviously very annoying to have to rewrite it and call it the four laws of (laughs) robotics so he managed to do it he added the fourth law in by going backwards so there's a zero th- uh, law that's,
2: Yeah, that's standard, uh, I think like There's a zero th- law of thermodynamics as well In science uh, so a few like that. yeah. That's the equivalent of yeah. going back
0: and changing Wank to Wannack all the way through, isn't it?
2: Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly
1: So there's actually four laws in the three laws of robotics And that fourth one is A robot may not harm humanity Or by inaction allow humanity to come to harm
0: A high bar to clear
1: I
2: read about the first ever sci-fi convention Oh, um, cool. yes This was a fundraiser by a man called Dr. Herbert Tippetts, uh, who was the founder of London's West End Hospital and School of Massage and Electricity. And he'd read this book by (laughs) Edward Bulwer-Lytton called Vril, The Power of the Coming Race. And he thought, what a great idea. I will set up a little convention where people can dress up as characters from this book and it'll make us a load of money for my hospital. And so he did. He spent an absolute ton of money setting it up. There was magic shows. There was It was kind of um, like an Egyptian-style bit of sci-fi. So everyone dressed in all these Egyptian garbs, sometimes in ancient Greek clothing. Um, everyone got these little glasses of Bovril <laughs> because there was a magic fluid called Vril in this book. And the company that was making beef extract drinks decided to rebrand and call themselves bovril in honor of uh, this yeah. um, amazing so book cool. uh, people could go along there was a demon dog who could read minds that you could go and see there was all sorts of stuff happening but then basically it didn't go according to plan uh, there was a critic writing in the magazine truth who said a more humiliating display of witless and puerile fantasticalities was never designed Yeah, (laughs) and everyone basically hated it. It was supposed to run for three days. It actually ran for five days, but not because everyone wanted to go. It was just because so few people went that they wanted to get one or two more people through the door so they could make some of the money back. And the guy lost 1600 pounds. Uh, rather than making any money for his hospitals, and declared himself bankrupt.
0: Wow. Such a shame. That whole thing, it feels like it's an argument for the fact that we never developed time travel in our history, because obviously time travellers would all want to go to the first ever sci-fi convention, <laughs> yes. because that would be an yeah. amazing thing, and that guy would have coined it in if we ever That sounds time like a
2: really good kind of meta- sci-fi story of all the time travellers going back there I think
0: that's probably the real
1: reason they extended it for two days because they think in the future we're going to have to up the capacity limit here for when all the time (laughs) travellers come back Yeah. yeah, and they had this whole thing. They had an opening ceremony where they had Prince Henry and Princess Beatrice of Battenberg come and do the official opening. And they were accepting donations right from the get-go as soon as they announced the opening, where people who were representatives of organizations would approach them, and they would drop purses filled with donations in front of them. So it looked like, oh, the money's coming in. This is a huge success. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they discovered afterwards when money was not being made and all the things had gone wrong is that the purses that were being dropped were all props and there was nothing in there and so they didn't even have Uh, that to rely on yeah come
3: on battenbergs they should have just done a cake sale
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay that's it that is all of our facts thank you so much for listening if you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast we can all be found on our twitter accounts i'm on at schreiberland james at james harkin andy at andrew hunter m and anna
3: you can email podcast at qi.com.
1: yep or you can go to our group account which is at no such thing or our website no such thing as a all of our previous episodes are up there also do check out the dates for our upcoming tour we're back on the road we'd love to see you there but until then we'll be back again next week with another episode and we'll see you then goodbye